0: This podcast is brought to you by the Physiological Society. It's no secret that bullying in academia has been a big topic of conversation in recent years, prompting concerns that a culture of harassment and intimidation is growing in research institutions across Britain. So why is bullying in academia so rife? How can you spot bullying in your own work environment? And what more needs to be done to tackle the problem? That's what we're discussing in today's episode as we hear from Yelka Bowiston, Professor in Gender and Development at King's College London, and co author of the paper Bullying and Harassment in Research and Innovation Environments, and Nikki Err, Managing Director of Conduct Change, a workplace bullying consultancy. So, Yelka, can you tell us a bit more about what prompted the paper that you co authored on bullying and harassment in research and innovation environments? Yes, of course.
1: Uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So we prepared a report in 2019, which was actually commissioned by UKRI, the UK Research and Innovation Group, as the UKRI really started to develop its comprehensive equality, diversity, and inclusion policies. So the report was meant to underpin some of that policy and programming, and we co-researched it with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, between a researcher, Laura Jones, and Hannah Riatsudin and myself, and the three of us uh, are based at King's College London.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about some of the key findings that resulted from that report?
1: So what we wanted to do for, for the report is, first of all, to provide an overview of the available evidence, because there's a lot of talk about bullying and harassment, but actually we felt very little systematic reviewing of the evidence so we wanted to provide an overview of the available evidence we wanted to look at existing approaches to prevent and address bullying and harassment in higher education and to map where the gaps are in our understanding of what works now Some of the key findings, of course, first of all, looks at why, what are the specific characteristics of higher education that create a particular environment in which bullying and harassment might thrive, if you wish, or what are the main challenges. And we found a couple of issues that perhaps are obvious if we think about it, but at the same time, sometimes here and there, some somewhat contradictory. First of all, higher education is on the one hand quite hierarchical, and these hierarchies come with high status and with access to job security and resources. So, job insecurity feeds into the vulnerability of junior staff, and they're vulnerable to bullying. They have difficulty to speak up if they feel uh, vulnerable in particular situations. In addition, high workloads and associated stress makes people cross the boards in all levels, really not always very happy people. And that creates also fertile ground for bullyish behavior. But despite these clear hierarchies between junior and senior staff, via the titles we carry, for example, as temporary and permanent members of staff lecturers, senior lecturers, professors, and so forth. there's at the same time not often not a clear line management. Within academia, we all do very different jobs in one, from teaching, which might be really anchored in the institution, to research, which is very often international and dependent on research networks on which the institution actually has very little overview to more administrative or even uh, managerial roles, which is very often still a completely different line of accountability. So it's very often not clear how and via whom one should hold people to account for their behavior, particularly for the small everyday instances uh, of communication that can occur, for example, in an international research space or in the everyday on-campus teaching relationships or in committee work, which is still another dynamic.
0: The report does focus on higher education institutions, but you draw on wider research literature to help support your findings. But then you have mentioned there are kind of conditions almost that are unique to a higher education environment, which
1: which have which have resulted in these key findings. That's a very good point. And it's precisely because of that, that strong hierarchies within higher education and and those, to a certain extent, undef- undefined role descriptors of what we do and who we are accountable to as academics uh, within that space. So on one hand, the hierarchy, on the other hand, actually a lack of clarity. And then there's all these tensions around what academics actually do. And a lot of what academics do is develop their own research to advance their own careers. So competition within mm-hmm which you might not have in a corporate world, for example, but people are very competitive amongst each other, but at the same time, they pretend that they're not. So you create tensions, particularly between senior and junior people about who owns what knowledge and who owns the development of knowledge production, including the teaching. So these very specific elements of higher education makes it, I think, different from other spaces. You
0: talk in the report about some existing approaches to preventing and addressing bullying and harassment. So can you talk us through some of those approaches and do you know if they're working or do you have are there any kind of case studies in, in, in instances that you know that they, they do actually work?
1: Yeah, so th- there are a couple of issues here, I think. I think one of the things that that as institutions we need to think about is the role of human resources no and this is something that that i'm saying largely out of experience of working uh, for a long time in higher education institutions and and this sort of this lack of clarity around uh, accountability and line management and the role of human resources in higher education is not always very clear is it to intervene to investigate or to mediate does hr support staff or does it protect the institution's reputation does it have the power and capacity to mediate in disputes between colleagues and these are questions that are really quite relevant and that make people within higher education institutions really quite nervous because they don't trust uh, the institution or human resources and that has to do with this idea of vulnerability and job vulnerability in particular no so w- one of the things that institutions do and try to do and some of it, which is successful uh, and some of it is difficult to measure uh, its success just because we're actually so recent only uh, working on this very seriously across the board, which is, of course, uh, prevention. So how do we create institutions that are culturally respectful towards each other. I mean, that's what we all want in the end. So institutions should make all efforts to communicate expected behavior to staff and students and set clear boundaries of what is acceptable. And such clear communication would also allow people to recognize when boundaries are crossed and hence give the opportunity to raise issues and denormalize bad behavior. And that would then create a possibility to intervene very early before things escalate and become formal grievances. There's very little evidence of of how you do this systematically and effectively across the sector. So one of the things that is increasingly done is repeated communication of good and accepted codes of conduct is agree with the institutions within, uh, seek buy-in from staff members about what should be in a code of conduct and that that should be repeatedly circulated and discussed at all levels. There must be consistent and good quality training around EDI, uh, uh, equality, diversity and inclusion, around sexual harassment, what it means and bystander training. So those are really the three pillars of professional training within institutions that most institutions do some of, no? EDI, sexual harassment, bystander, or consent and bystander training. Leading by example is very important. So institutions must create a culture in which senior members of staff are not afraid to call out bad behavior and really show what the boundaries are of bad behavior. These are some of the preventative actions around creating a respectful culture that institutions are developing. But there is very little, as we saw in our report, there's actually very little sort of systematic evidence based of how you do that effectively and what works. So in that sense, we're all just trying and doing our best in designing policies and communicating with each other in the hope that in a couple of years we can follow up and start comparing across the sector of what works better than than other interventions.
0: Yes, because you mentioned codes of conduct, and is there any sort of sector, almost charter, bullying charter that institutions can sign up to to at least have some sort of commitment to members of staff that they are unified in in
1: trying to tackle tackle these issues yeah that's a very good question so there's not one standard set of rules or guidelines but this is exactly what the ukri asked us to look look into so what are actually the boundaries and so that they then can set up their own code of conduct in my own institution we design codes of conduct at faculty level and then at senior level as well, and then at departmental level as well. And they all look very similar. They all have the same principles around, on the one hand, respect for each other and each other's opinions, and on the other hand, freedom of speech, and the balance between these different um, types of behavior. And I think that that is also important, that sometimes codes of conduct can and should be specific to a particular unit, because that is what creates buy-in from colleagues. If you get a unit of colleagues who can actually discuss what they find important to include or to exclude in a particular code of conduct. So discussing that is also an opportunity to define what those boundaries are, even if then in the end they all look more or less the same. They don't have to be similar across the board. While at the same time time they probably start looking very similar across the board. So I mean, this report is
0: really an important stepping stone in recognising the issues within higher education institutions. And as you said, you sort of you saw quite early on early on in the journey in kind of solidifying processes and training and education to try and really address these issues. At this stage, can you say what more needs to be done at this stage, just apart from what has already been done through this research and other kind of initiatives that have been going on?
1: Leadership is really important in this. And that's something that we very much emphasise in the report. No? So we, so there's a lot of in institutions, a lot of initiatives around prevention, around campaigns, around codes of conduct, all these sort of relatively local initiatives. But it's really important that institutional high-level leaderships picks this up and makes it an institutional policy that is really an institutional approach and not an individual approach nor a departmental approach that it's one unit that doesn't function or or so no because today it's this unit and tomorrow it's the other unit. So it really needs strong leadership to embed activities across the organization. The other thing that some institutions seem to do better than others is creating institution-wide systems for reporting. I think the consensus is that is starting to emerge is that there's a report and support system so that the emphasis is on the one hand to an online reporting system with strong support systems behind the scene that can then respond to any complaints or allegations. These report and support systems work better in some institutions than others. And that has to do, again, I think with resourcing them well, these systems, and with leadership.
0: So over to you, Nikki, can you tell us a bit more about your organisation, Conduct Change, and why you set this up?
2: Thank you, Eleanor. So Conduct Change was set up because I was actually bullied myself in the workplace. I was in quite a senior role, and it came as quite a shock to me to discover that I was being bullied and took me quite a long time to actually speak up about it. I ended up going through all the processes, policies, procedures, right up to appeal process, but I was too ill to continue on to a tribunal. And I think one of the things that once I was kind of through that initial stage of having left the organisation was that recognition that it was going to take me a really long time to recover. Now, a huge part of my recovery process was actually about understanding what had happened to me, both in terms of my own health and well-being and the way my body had responded, my health had responded, but also looking at why does this happen in organisations? Why are these policies that we have such faith in that we go to and say, well, this is here to protect me as an employee? Why is this not working? And... That learning developed into quite a passion for me, a real interest because the really understanding kind of the psychology, the behaviors, but also looking at, you know, there's 20, 25 years worth of research into bullying and harassment in the workplaces and starting to kind of draw on some of that research to really help with my understanding allowed me to move from, this is something really dreadful that has happened to me, to actually, this is something incredibly interesting and fascinating. And now I'd like to go out and do something about making a change here.
0: So in your opinion, how can people who are not not in the HR department have a a job which is not their responsibility to stop bullying? But how can people like that help to stop bullying in the workplace? If we're looking at what people can do
2: on a day-to-day basis, then behaviour, our own behaviour to start off with is within our own control. So the first thing we can do is if we're in a difficult situation is that self-reflective piece that says, what am I doing that's contributing to this situation? But when we find ourselves repeatedly in uh, a situation where we're feeling uncomfortable, something doesn't feel right, and that grows to feeling under attack from consistent behavior. And I think when we're talking about bullying, um, and I'm talking about workplace bullying in the sense of non-discriminatory and purely from a legal point of view here because they're treated quite differently under the law. So if it's discriminatory or harassment, it can be a one-off event, but workplace bullying tends to be a repeated pattern of behaviour. And it's that repetition that causes a huge amount of damage. And it can start from really small moments of rudeness and incivility and really Lead up to some very overt signs of um, bullying, like shouting, um, banging on desks, throwing things, you know, there's um, humiliating people in meetings, those kind of things that are very obvious to other people watching, to very covert behaviour, So, the very psychological, the gaslighting, the getting people to doubt themselves, to doubt their own sanity, their version of reality. And those are incredibly damaging. So what can we do if we witness this? Well, there are a number of things we can do. And Jelka mentioned there about bystanders. And what we can do is we can either take direct action, so actually call out that behavior in the moment, if it's safe to do so. That's quite a hard thing to ask people to do because there is that fear of the retaliation. Uh, If you do that. So that's about the psychological safety in the organisation. If I speak up, am I going to get punished for it? And if people are, then they're not going to do that. They're not going to take that direct action. But perhaps you can distract, change the subject, perhaps call the person away from a situation, tell them they're needed somewhere else. You can delay, you can go and ask them afterwards, are you okay? You know, I just, I felt uncomfortable in that situation. I just wanted to check whether you felt the same way. Or you can delegate, you can go and ask for that support from a line manager, from HR, or it could even be someone who has almost a social standing in a group where people look up to them because they are a great leader, because they are positive, confident, fair in everything that they do and therefore people listen to them. And that's not about title that's about the way that they work with other people and the way that people respond to them. So there's that element of it. And I think really it is very much about the more we start calling out poor behaviour, early on, and the earlier it is done, the better, then the greater the chances are of change because that ripple effect occurs where people observe this happening. They see that actually that's not wanted anymore and they start to make that change because most of our changes in behaviour come through observation.
0: For you, was there sort of a a light bulb moment or a specific conversation that you had which made you realise, oh, I actually think I am being bullied? So interesting. I would say that I had a very early
2: conversation where I had that light bulb moment, but my initial response to that was, well, that's ridiculous. you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a strong woman in a senior position, and therefore I can't be bullied, and I'm not going to let that happen. When I look back, that was the moment of the, which the trust in the relationship was completely destroyed. What I started to do was I started to adopt behaviors that I knew I would be rewarded for, even though they went against my values and my principles. And I did that gradually over a period of time. And I did it to protect myself and make sure that I kept my job. And what happened in that was that continual clash of values, that continual walking on eggshells, not knowing where I stood, not knowing what would happen next, lasted for nearly two years before I actually decided enough is enough and I need to you know, put in a formal complaint at this stage.
0: I think for some people there might seem a lot at stake or a risk for actually taking action. What if there's a person being bullied who actually doesn't want to take things any further or doesn't want any intervention? What what advice would you give to them? So the most important thing is self-care. Put your health first.
2: There's no shame in walking away if that is the right thing for you to do. That is so important for people to understand. And actually, you shouldn't feel any shame anyway from being bullied. Anybody can be bullied. It can happen to anyone at any point in their career. And I think that's really important for people to understand. This isn't just a a top-down kind of situation. It can be top-down, bottom-up. It can be sideways. And it can happen to anyone at any time. So don't assume that you're alone because this happens to many people. There is support out there. If you don't want to speak to somebody internally, then there are external support groups or mental health lines where you can go and talk to people. But please, please, please put your health
0: first above anything else. If you want to learn more about becoming a member of the Physiological Society, head to physog.org slash join. So already Yelke has outlined some of the actions being taken by academic institutions, uh, partly from the advice in the report and the recommendations, what mechanisms could you suggest for institutions to put in place or to prevent or deal with bullying? So when institutions are looking at this
2: topic, they tend to look at it in terms of policies and procedures. And what we find is there is a a triangle, if you like, that they go up. So we start off with there's some behaviour. So as an individual, we try and make sense of it. We decide it might be bullying, so we go and ask for support. At that point, what an organisation thinks is, we must not let this get to tribunal. And yet the first thing they do is they push people towards formal processes. So you go to HR and HR do get caught. I know you were talking about this earlier. They do get caught between a rock and a hard place because most people who go into HR are there because they care about people and they want to help them. And yet they are trained into the policies and processes which actually help protect the organization. And what we find is that the majority of workplace bullying cases are not upheld. So we're using a system that has an extraordinarily high failure rate. And I'm talking 80, 90 percent. There aren't exact figures, but around that sort of level. And so what we need to do is we need to stop trying to immediately think, as an organisation, stop going to that point of thinking, right, okay, what do we need to do to stop this going to tribunal? And start thinking, actually, as one human being to another, how can we change this situation? So, quite often when people report bullying, it is so far down the line that they are probably either about to go off sick or have been off sick for a while. They may have actually reached a point of trauma. And so, you know, there can be really, really prolonged injuries, brain injuries, a result of um, the trauma of workplace bullying. Therefore, they might not be able to really present their case in a coherent way. It will affect their concentration, their focus, their memory. And all of these mean that what happens so often is that it becomes a performance issue because they start saying, well, you haven't been performing well. Well, as an organisation, first of all, go back to the point where they stopped performing and find out what happened then. Look at the wider context. Look at what's going on. When you're talking about the, the lack of clarity in terms of line management there, Jelka, it's so important because that makes such a huge difference to people. And where there is a lack of clarity, it's been shown that it provides much greater opportunity for workplace bullying complaints to arise, not just in higher education, but generally across all sectors. But I think the most important thing we need to remember is that there isn't a quick fix. It's not about what can we put in place, but it's about putting a absolute web of interventions in place because what will work for one person won't work for another. So we need to make sure they're caught in different ways. So, some of that is about education and training. It's about if people have line management responsibilities, training them in the emotional intelligence aspects. It's about things like job design. Why do we only do stress? risk assessments when people have been off work and start coming back, let's look at where the stress, the psychosocial risk assessment elements, where does it come into job design? Where does it come into the way that we deliver our work on a daily basis? You know, it's not just about HR and it's not just about line management. There's health and safety. There's the board looking at those internal indicators of workplace bullying from staff turnover to absenteeism you know, it all reduces productivity and output at the end of the day as well. So if people are being bullied in the higher education sector, they're not performing, they're not going to get the research contracts. And that will damage the reputation as well. But there are so many interventions that need to be put in place, but you can come at it from so many different routes. People who are just relying on a policy are starting in the wrong place completely it's actually let's take a step back and let's look at those everyday interactions and how we can better those and this is not about an initiative this is about a different way of working it's not a short term fix it's about being relentless in change monitoring it adjusting
0: using the feedback
2: and keeping going
0: yelko you outline in the report that we need to start recognizing bullying and harassment as an organizational Issue and not an individual issue. How do we go about actually doing
1: this in practice? It's really complex, and I think that Nikki's story has already indicated how complex this is and and how difficult it is to tackle. I mean, policies are tools for us to use. No, they're not a solution. They're only frameworks, and they allow us to perhaps hold people to account they allow us to record things. It it is a framework to fall back on, but it doesn't resolve anything by itself. So in the end, I completely agree that there needs to be a focus on the culture of behavior and relationality between people. How do we treat each other? How do we want to be treated? But that doesn't rule out bad behavior either, because we are all very different people and we all behave differently and we have different backgrounds and we, you know, so there are so many different ways of, of communicating with each other. And I think that that is actually also something we need to take into account. No, so that so, so training around, uh, so a whole diversity of training on the one hand bystander training, how can we intervene, but also simply training of how do we, deal in a diverse environment and what are actually not creating knowledge around equality laws and policies. And it can be very broad indeed. So on the one hand, we need to move away from bullying and harassment as an individual issue and look at it from an organizational perspective. And on the other hand, we shouldn't lose sight of the individuals that make that organization. No, organizations aren't things. They are, but at the same time, you know, it's you and me and, and it's it's the people who make the organization. So it's really finding a balance between the organization as an institution and the people therein, which is why I think that leadership is so very important. And as Nikki also said, leadership is not just management, but management is very much or leadership is very much about a whole range of things, including emotional intelligence, how do you deal with people? Uh, how do you create a respectful culture in your own unit? And that goes from leadership in small units to all the way to the top of bigger organizations and all those different layers. There are leaders, uh, formal leaders or informal leaders. Or, so I think that organizations need to identify those leaders and, and, and really work with them to become champions of a respectful working environment. Nikki, I know you work a lot with organisations to
0: try and tackle bullying from the top down. So what are some of the practical things you implement when working with these organisations? So I think, you know, a lot of those have been
2: covered already. Um, One of the things that I would say, um, Jelka mentioned about conduct agreements earlier. Uh, I always call them conduct agreements because I very much agree with the approach of getting people involved. But actually, when you have your leaders in the room with the people and they're saying, these are our expectations, this is what it's going to look, sound and feel like. If we include that word respect, this is what it looks, sounds and feels like to us. So it's taking it right down to the behaviours that are linked to the word and understanding those interpretations. But those leaders have to hold themselves accountable. And one of the really key things here is that If you have somebody like a chief executive, who holds them accountable for their behavior? And if they don't have that emotional intelligence to be self-aware, to look inward, to reflect on their own behavior, then one of the things I would say to them is find yourself a coach that will hold that mirror up to your behavior if you're not willing to do it for yourself or not able to do it at this point. I think that is one of the hardest parts for people who are in an organization when that person at the top displays the unacceptable behaviors. And one of the things I would always say is that just because a behavior is accepted, it doesn't mean it's acceptable. So making the changes could take you know a long time, but you have to start to call it out. And if that means standing up and saying, I did this and it's not acceptable and I'm not going to do it again and I apologize to you, then that is a sign of a true leader. So there are many other things they can do. Certainly as a a board, they can look at the indicators of bullying. They can take that risk management approach. Um, And I think Jelka talked about that in her report as well, that actually does need to be a risk management approach constantly looking at where have we got those differences. Use the reporting systems if you have them. A lot of companies have apps now that will highlight areas where they're getting more and more complaints from about these. Do something with that data. Don't ask people for their input and do nothing with it. Psychological safety as an organization is built when people are allowed to speak up And when they can speak up about positive ideas, when they can disagree well, when they can have heated conversations that are about the ideas and the creativity and the innovation and not about the individuals, then they have the psychological safety. And when they can do that well, they have the courage and they feel safe to speak up when things go wrong as well. And that is what we need to aim for allowing people to have their voices in the organisation.
0: So much of what we've talked about today is rooted in workplace culture, and we've mentioned that word a lot, as as well as leadership. So how do we shift attitudes that are so deeply entrenched in our society? And and that's, that's to both of you, really. I think the first thing that we do is we
2: have conversations like these. You know, this has been a subject. When I first started doing this work, everybody said to me, do not use the word bullying. Businesses don't like it. And I said, Well, do you know what? Neither of the people on the receiving end of it. And I've continued to have these conversations. And what we see now is that they're happening more and more. We're seeing more and more people going into the media. If they're not being heard in the workplace, they're going to the media, they're using social media, they're using the press to voice their concerns, to voice their um, disappointment in the workplace. And that has hugely damaging consequences for businesses and organizations in terms of their reputation, their economic input, their uh, attractiveness to investors, all of those kind of things. So we need to start having bigger, bigger conversations and make sure that things do change, that people understand that behaviour change is wanted and long overdue. I very much agree
1: with that, Nikki. And one of the things that I think is really helpful is to outline very specific behaviours, examples. So I've seen faculties that sort of have a whole Excel sheet with quotes from staff and students of of what kind of behaviour they might feel offensive of or, or harassing or and then you can actually by using examples you create a different type of understanding and even a definition of certain behaviors that many people just haven't considered oh is that is that perceived as irritating annoying or even bullyish? and those are that that is very interesting so starting that conversation about what people perceive fundamentally really unpleasant and obstructive to their well-being is really important and helps creating a conversation before the bad behavior is shown so yeah having those conversations independent of any statistical evidence of the the scale of the problem that in the end those those tools are useful but it's not the point the point is that we need to create an environment if, in, in, in which we can recognise uh, what respectful and uh, non-respectful behaviour is and hold each other to account. So this is very much at all levels of any uh, organisation. I think from
2: my point of view, I would just say if you do feel that you are being bullied, then just go and do a little bit of research, find a little bit about it, make sense of it but also speak up and ask for support you're not alone there is no shame this is being done to you it is possible to have life after bullying a
0: big thanks to our guests Yelka and Nikki i'm Eleanor Newton if you want to learn more about the physiological society head to physoc.org/join please rate review and subscribe to let's get physiological wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on linkedin Twitter and Facebook to hear about our work and how we can support you in your career as a physiologist. Just search the Physiological Society and thank you for listening.